welcome to Fast Transients, the official podcast of Fortis Analysis. I'm Ross Kennedy. So by now, what you've probably noticed in the media uh, and, and even around the kitchen table or the water cooler at work uh, or church, wherever you may be, there is a, a sudden awareness of the, the, the way the world really truly works. For a lot of people, if you ask them, where does food come from? Where does uh, a couch come from? Where do your TVs come from? Most people would instinctively say, well, the TV comes from Best Buy or it comes from Walmart or the couch comes from Ashley Furniture. Uh, the food comes from the grocery store. And if you really press them and say, hey, where does it actually come from? You may get a very sort of general answer of, well, it comes from uh, China, right? Or, or maybe they know that, that a lot of furniture is made in Vietnam, so they give you that answer. Maybe they know that, you know, because of Omaha Steak, you know, company, they, they broadly associate uh, the steak on the shelf with having come from, uh, you know, maybe a cattle farm in Nebraska or Iowa. But the truth of the matter is, is that the average person has become incredibly disconnected from everything that they need. And, and rely on in their day-to-day lives, the real origin, the real source of the things that they need, the things that they want, the things that will make them feel secure or in some way enhance their life. And what that disconnect has, has, has resulted in is a sense of complacency and comfort, particularly in America, Western Europe, Canada, well, these things will always be here. They will always be on the shelves because there is some wizard in the machine, some powerful man behind the curtain who makes all of this work. But the reality is, is that supply chains in the modern world, the things that, that make the things we use, the things we use, the intermediate parts and pieces and processes in the middle are not magical. There is no man or wizard behind the curtain. It is an enormous, massively dynamic and complex system of motivations ranging from money, ideology, coercion, pure outright ego, you know, what we call the mice factors of motivation. And these systems and these mechanisms are the ways in which humans meet their needs individually, but also at scale. At, a, at grand strategy geopolitical scale. And so to the extent that in the free trade world, the assumption has always been that people will act uh, in a natural mutual benefit will derive from individual actors acting according to their own self-interest. That was largely true. But what happens in a world that is so interconnected, so dynamic, and so ripe for disruption for political and ideological purposes that the, that the assumption that everybody involved in the whole supply chain from here to there and everywhere else is always going to act in a rational, predictable way according to economic and financial benefit and according to what's their own best interest from a financial side. What happens when you begin to introduce concepts of gray zone warfare, unrestricted warfare, economic coercion, manipulation of financial markets, manipulation of currency, manipulation of international regulatory law, manipulation of whole sectors of the world's economy for geopolitical gain? 
And in that scenario, every static assumption we've ever made about humans working towards uh, natural alignment of self-interest, every assumption we made about, you know, Bastiat's apocryphal quote about how when goods fail to cross borders, armies will. When we take all of that and we say this no longer is a paradigm where we can make static assumptions about free trade, static assumptions about rational self-interest, static assumptions about globalization versus nationalism. Human beings no longer have the optionality and the safety and the security to simply think I can go to the store or I can go on Amazon, I can buy a thing and have it available for me. The average human is now in a place where they have to plan. They have to know how to repair rather than buy new. And if they're not repairing, and you know, if they're not repairing and they can't buy new, then they go without. Or they have to incentivize someone else to be able to make that repair, provide them a thing, typically at a greater cost. So the disposable consumer economy that we have, well, it was a great TV while it lasted. You know, it lasted a year or two, <laughs> cheap Chinese TV. I'll just go buy a new one. A lot of these assumptions are are now being forced to fall by the wayside. And perhaps one of the, the, the clearest and most startling examples to people is, is the sudden explosion of reporting in the last six weeks coming out of the mainstream media about the port congestion at Los Angeles and Long Beach. To those of us who work in the industry, as, as NVOCCs or non-vessel operating common carriers, those who work in the ocean transportation sector, freight forwarding, those who work in importer and exporter, trucking, drayage, those of us who work directly in the day-to-day nitty-gritty are not surprised by what we're seeing out here. We're not surprised by it because we understood intuitively or explicitly how easy it would be to disrupt and disintermediate this system and cause absolute chaos downstream and upstream and throughout the global supply chains. So a fragile model that was already over-optimized has now come to a screeching halt suddenly all at once, but after 18, 20, 24 months of disruption. And that's led to a rise of conspiracy theories and a rise that, oh, this is a controlled demolition of the American economy, or this is an attack by China on us. It's really not. It's really not. To the extent that we look back and say on an ex post facto basis, well, look at all the things that only makes sense now in context, most of those things are easily explained by the elites at companies, the elites in government, the elites in the financial institutions, not operating in explicit concert with one another, but simply doing what they've always done, which is working within their own domain of power and within their own networks to reinforce their standing, to bolster the fortress and weather the attacks and survive and endure so that when they come out of it, they are as wealthy or wealthier, as powerful or more powerful. But it's not, a, it's not an organized, coherent conspiracy where A caused B caused C caused D. Linear things, linear attempts to attack a model, a dynamic system, typically will fail. This is a complex, nonlinear, catastrophic failure cascade And there are many, 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 many factors in play. Money, ideology, coercion, ego, unrestricted warfare, simple, outright greed and power at war with with itself, 
and a system that is at war with the average consumer who is powerless to affect these changes. But we need to make an honest attempt. Those of us who work in the industry, those of us who have the national interest of the United States at heart, those of us who recognize the very tight interdependencies between our economy and our national security apparatus, and those of us who recognize that for 30 years, a country that only now the average American is waking up to the threat from, has weaponized our food, our energy, our consumer goods, our energy industries, all of these things are suddenly a weapon. And so a shortage on the shelf is a natural output of a failure cascade in, our, in globalized supply chains. But it's also an indicator that if we don't do something about it, if we don't realign consumer attitudes, if we don't take policy and procedure steps to secure our economic and national security supply chain dependence, if we don't do these things now, the shortages that we're seeing are going to turn into strategic vulnerabilities that will make it very, very easy to tip over the house of cards that the United States supply chain and economy currently is. So what I'm preparing today and presenting today is a, a I wouldn't say modest, I would say it is a, a wild, counterintuitive, out there plan to address the current and intermediate and future disruptions that we are likely to see at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. The time to plant this tree was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. The second best time to do it is today. And as of yet, there has been no coherent, rational perspective brought to the table. Everybody, again, it's a conspiracy or how do I, as a politician, manipulate this situation for my own political gain and for that of the people who put money in my pockets? And I say the hell with all of that. Throw it all out. We are going to put something together that serves the needs and the interests of the average consumer that is a better band-aid than doing nothing and allows us to bridge past the next six to 12 months of chaos that we're likely to continue to see and allows us to move forward with rebuilding American infrastructure, rebuilding the foundation of American economy around America first, around our allies, not first, but very closely second, and creating a new world of independence at the American level and interdependence amongst people who do not wish us harm and to whom we do not wish harm. We have to decouple from the influence of the last 30 to 40 years of globalization, particularly when it comes to our dependence on Asian supply chains. It's a huge ocean, and we have eroded every economic advantage that we have in being dependent on that trade lane. And now it has been grasped as a weapon and picked up and is being wielded against us. So it starts by fixing the things that are broken and getting us at least back to some semblance of, of however complicated, but at least predictability within our port infrastructure. And then we begin building out from there the things that we need to endure and eventually to thrive in the next 25 to 50 years. So we'll start with two sort of introductory kind of sense-making concepts. The first, a lot of listeners will be familiar with, that's the accordion effect. I've used it pretty frequently as a very simple visual model that we're all pretty, uh, you know, pretty familiar with. 
And what it is if you imagine a 10 mile long stretch of cars traveling at 70 miles an hour down the highway. Everybody's more or less equal spacing and the system which, which is a, we're watching what seems to be a linear flow of movement, but it's actually a very dynamic system because within every one of those cars contains a human being that's, that, that is likely to make unpredictable decisions under duress, or is at least possible to do that. You have a complex machine with a car. You have the limitations and the effects of physics. And you have all of these things that if, you just, if you're just watching all the cars go by, all it looks like is just a line of things moving through time and space. But what you have inherent in the system is the potential for enormous disruption. So if we take that model and we look at the car at the front of the line, something is on the highway, car number one slams on its brakes, car number two, three, four, all the way back. Everybody slams on their brakes. They have to swerve. They're on their phone. They're not paying attention. And so what you end up with is this, this parking lot, this 10 mile long parking lot that has come to a screeching halt. And everybody's wondering what's going on. What happened? Eventually, whatever obstruction is in the highway you know, is resolved. Car number one begins down the highway. It takes car number two a few seconds to recognize car number one is moving, to put their phone down, put the car in gear, and get back going down the highway. And if you repeat that process all the way back, one car at a time, going from standing still to a start and then back up to speed, what you will see is that car number one if they're at point X in time, it's going to be X plus 10 minutes, 20 minutes before that entire column of cars that once was moving very smoothly and more or less in equilibrium is able to get moving enough that car at the back of the line, at the back of the 10 mile parking lot, is able to put their car and drive and go. That is what happens in dynamic systems that are limited not just by decision-making ability and need and money, but limited by geographic and physical constraints, time, distance, geography, powering a machine up, getting human beings back to work, all of these things, when they're moving smoothly, that looks like we've really optimized the system. When it all collapses together into that accordion, and then we slowly have to stretch the accordion back out to get everything up to speed and back into equilibrium, it takes a tremendous amount of time to do that. And that's assuming that you had one stop and one restart. But what happens when at different angles into this column of cars come uh, other cars that may come crashing in from the side? Or a major weather event happens that, that slows the ability for the cars to stretch back out. The world we live in is dynamic, not static. Attacks and disruptions and things can come from completely unexpected vectors, even as we've repaired the initial stoppage and restarted. You will see multiple stops and restarts along the line as different cars have different issues in this model. And it works no different with supply chains. It works no different when you're talking vast distances of time or vast distances of space, vast amounts of time to make a thing here from raw materials that are drawn from all these other places, get it assembled, get it into a container, move it all the way across the largest ocean in the world, get it to the United States, and eventually get it into our supply chain here, our logistics network. This is an extremely complex thing, and there's multiple domains of failure that have all happened here. So if we can again visualize something um, 
I will post it in the notes of this podcast. I posted it on my Twitter feed as well. And if we do an Ishikawa or a fishbone diagram, which is essentially a very easy sense-making tool for mapping out the domains and individual factors of constraint that may be the root cause of a specific issue, in this case, port congestion, we begin to see that it's not one thing. It's not anything other than a whole bunch of things being disrupted and failing all at once. And what we're going to present today is a working proposal, a concept of operations, if you will, an attempt to address as many of these domains at once as possible and begin building a model that is able to scale, that is able to build some flexibility back into the supply chain so that trucks are no longer hand to mouth, so the distribution centers are no longer waiting for a day for a container that was supposed to arrive yesterday, but the trucker couldn't make his appointment because he got bogged down in traffic and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down the line. We've got a system that is unadaptable, extremely linear, highly optimized and fragile, and totally reliant on 15, 20, 30 stakeholders, all acting in perfect concert and timing and alignment just to get a single container delivered to a warehouse and unloaded. So let's take a look at just a few of the, the bigger details here that we have to really understand and kind of hold in both hands before these things make sense. The ports at Los Angeles and Long Beach collectively represent anywhere from 35 to 40 percent in, in an average year of the full total volume of containers coming into the United States. Because of that, what you have is an enormous ecosystem of distribution centers, warehouses, transportation vendors, customs brokers, everything involved in the process of manufacturing goods, importing them into a container to the United States and then distributing to our consumer base. 40 percent ish of all of that is coming through essentially two ports in a normal year. Again, that can only happen because a system that more or less worked well for 30 years was never truly disrupted except for a few times by things like uh, longshoreman strikes, uh, teamster disruptions, whatever it may be. But typically those things are somewhat resolved. The system has enough capacity in it that it can kind of smooth back out over three or six month time period. 40%. If we anchor that number in our minds and we say four out of every 10 containers in the U.S. comes through that port in one way or another, that's an enormous, enormous volume of containers. But what we have seen is the, the need, because of all the disruptions in Asia, because of the disruptions in the U.S., because of how slow it has become to put a container onto rail at the port of Los Angeles or Long Beach and then you know, rail it to Chicago, now what we're seeing is a further concentration by carriers into these ports so that they can optimize their transit times and ideally turn around, or they're not taking as many ships to the East Coast as they would have. So what you've seen is a concentration of all of that volume down into these two ports as everybody is trying to rush these to the United States and get them into U.S. soil as fast as possible. And what that has actually done is that has actually clogged the funnel even more than a 35 to 40% average volume of containers. The accordion has slammed shut. 10 miles of cars are now dead stop on a highway. And little bits of cargo is leaking out rather than flowing through. There's 13 terminals at Los, at, uh, in the, the larger port complex. You've got seven container terminals at LA. You've got six at Long Beach. 
Right now, you've got 60 ships berthed. You've got, as of the time I'm talking about this, 54 are at anchor or drifting outside of anchorages, waiting to get in. Turn times for vessels have gone from 24 hours to 36 hours to 48 hours because it's much slower to pull these containers off the ships, restow them, restow empty containers or export containers to the ships. You've got essentially 7,800 acres of land to do all of this on, to move all of these containers through these massive ships that are big enough to block a canal in the middle of the world. You've got wait times to get even get into the gate. And that's assuming a trucker is even able to hit the appointment time that they have to have to get into the gate to get their container. They're sitting for two hours, three hours, four hours. And that clock is ticking on that driver because he can only drive 10 or 11 hours a day before the law says he's got to turn his truck off and wait and come back and do it again the next day. So the lucky ones are able to get one container out in the port deliver it somewhere in, in the greater Los Angeles area, Orange County, the Inland Empire, close in at Compton, whatever it may be, and maybe pull an empty container back and free that chassis up or that empty container so that it can be used to get another load, loaded container out onto the streets. You've got ocean carriers that have largely stopped what we call IPI or Inland Point Intermodal Service, which is rail service into a Denver, a Kansas City, a Chicago, a St. Louis, a Dallas, a Memphis. Because it takes too long to get the containers off, stage them, and get them out on trains, only 300 containers at a time. So the carriers have said, okay, if you want to get in and on rail, you got to go on the, the over the Canadian gateways of Prince Rupert or Vancouver. you got to go through Tacoma. But you're probably not getting a lot of rail out of Los Angeles or Long Beach unless it's maybe going to like a, you know, a Dallas or to a Memphis. But for the most part, the ocean carriers have now optimized around this model of Cram everything into Los Angeles and Long Beach, get the ship emptied out and back overseas with the empty containers off the deck. So this has had numerous, numerous knock-on effects all the way down. For a container that stops at the port, and whereas that container may be used to continue on to Chicago, now the container stops at the port, is picked up by a local trucker, taken to some warehouse, stripped off the cargo, stripped off the container, the, the empty container returned, maybe within a day or two by that trucker. Another trucker, a domestic trucker with a 53-foot drive-in trailer, has to come into that warehouse, pick up all of that cargo, and then deliver it for $8,000 to Chicago. So not only have we added a serious amount of additional costs, we've added complexity simply because a container had to stop at the port instead of being able to mount to rail and continue on into Chicago where a local trucker can do it. So we have all of these things happening here. All of these things happening. We have 2 billion square feet, 2 billion with a B, bravo, boy, 2 billion square feet of retail and distribution, retail distribution space and warehouses in the greater Los Angeles area. All of that built to serve the consumer appetites of the United States. So all of those have to be filled. All of that freight has to be accounted for. In addition, to 45% now, almost 50% of U.S. volume blowing through these two ports. When it gets to the warehouse side, the working throughput of the warehouse, that, that, which is a term where we, we essentially measure um, the amount of time a piece of freight is, is able to be handled before it heads back out, the working throughput of the warehouses is already reduced. Initially, it was lockdowns, contact tracing, people out sick, things like that. 
Then after the lockdown or during the lockdowns, we introduced stimulus plans. A lot of people that made more sense for them financially to stay at home rather than come back to work to take the stimulus dollars. And so they were out of work for months. Maybe the stimulus was enough to keep the family alive, but uh, they didn't have to pay for childcare anymore. That's a net win in their favor. And so people, a lot of people, particularly in the uh, low to middle income classes, really had to reorient their lives big time because of lockdowns, because of stimulus, because of labor market disruptions. And that is especially true in transportation, warehousing, and distribution sectors. So with the slower truck turn times, the reduction of labor, avail you know, the reduction in labor availability, you have all of these constraints that every step of the way have really bottlenecked things, made it very hard for that column of cars to start going again in a smooth fashion. Equipment shortages, whether it's trucks proper with, with or without drivers, uh, well cars for rail that the containers sit in double stack that you need to move containers around on rail, chassis which are were a durable and enormous uh, deficit all around the United States before all of this started. You know, we've been complaining about chassis issues since 2012, 2013, 2014. Not enough chassis today. They're not repaired. They need new tires or the brake lines are frozen. All of these things that we didn't really address because we kind of still thought we were at the end of history. Globalization fixed everything. And we can kind of put off till tomorrow what we should be doing today from a maintenance and from a system rework standpoint. Have all, all of this, all of this, are grains in the sand pile that now the sand pile is collapsing, it's in motion, and it won't stop until we hit the bottom. But there are things we can do to fix it, and that's what we're going to talk about here today, all right? So I'm not going to let the perma bear inside me, the one that sees the disruptions and is so cynical about the ability to fix them or at least the political will, if not the ability. We're going to take a shot. We're going to back burner that negativity and that cynicism and that fear about our supply chains. And we're going to put something optimistic and hopeful together. And if nothing else, a decent plan executed now is better than a perfect plan executed in a month. We don't have a month. If it's not in the U.S. right now, it's probably not going to be available on Black Friday. If it's not on the water now, it's probably not going to be available before Christmas. And if it's not being manufactured now in the factory somewhere in China or somewhere in Vietnam or somewhere in Thailand or Malaysia, Taiwan, Japan, Korea, if it's not being made right now, it's not going to be here before Lunar New Year. And when Lunar New Year in China shuts down for weeks at a time, you see a disruption. It's a known common effect that we deal with. But you do see a disruption. You see blank sailings. You see carriers idling ships for a week or two or sending them elsewhere. And it takes a bit to get those things back in those lanes that they need to be in. It takes a while to get the crews back to the ships to get crew changes done. Is this crew member sick? Oh, no, we have to pull someone else into that crew. It delays things by a day. Fuel supply chain disruptions. All of these things are happening concurrently. And the reduction in production capacity that China is seeing right now with the power cuts, whether, again, it is contrived, whether it is a output of the supply chain failures, whether it's an output of bad political decisions, whatever it may be, the simple fact of the matter is, is that factories in China that once were producing five or six days a week are now producing one day a week, two days a week, three days a week. 
But even then, there was so much work still to be done. The purchase orders are still flowing in from America. The demand is still flowing in from America. That all it's doing is making it harder. Yeah, is it going to ease a little bit of congestion on the shipping side? Yes, it will. Right up until the point that even the stuff being made for a day or two or three days a week can't get on water for weeks at a time. Spring comes around, the power, you know, the power reductions are uh, addressed or mitigated at some point. The great shaking out over the winter has occurred. Cargo resumes flowing in as it normally does, as it begins to come back out of Lunar New Year and we start to see volumes come up in April and in May and June, which is the, the typical cycle every year. We're getting right into the middle of next year. We're getting right into the middle of an imminent West Coast port shutdown in all Canadian ports and all U.S. ports where the ILWU, which is all of the major ones, where the International Longshoremen and Warehousemen's Union is going to be in a dispute with the Pacific Maritime Association that represents the terminals, the ports, and the interests of the ocean carriers. And these two entities are going to be at war, and they're going to be at war over an existential threat to the Longshoremen's Union, which is the concept of automation inside the ports. Gantry cranes that can stow and destow ships remotely without having a man in the middle, up in the seat, doing the work. Automated cranes moving around the terminal, trucks moving around the terminal, the way Rotterdam has done, the way some of the terminals at Yangshan, which is one of the major port complexes outside China, have done. Greatly limiting the need for, for workers on dock and thus reducing the membership of the union and putting it possibly even into a bit of a death spiral. The union rightfully does not want to see that happen to them. And thus far, there has not really ever been an optimal solution for both parties. The PMA, the ocean carriers, the ports, the terminals, they want to increase efficiency. They want to maximize throughput with a minimal amount of potential human disruption. And so it is, in a sense, a little bit existential for both parties, which means we are going to see every trick, every negotiation tactic, some of them even what I may call kinetic negotiations. We may start to see these things happen. We may see. Are we going to see violence? I don't know. But violence is a characteristic, certainly, or threats of violence is certainly a characteristic of labor negotiations in the past in the U.S. We will definitely see lock, you know, we will definitely see uh, strikes and lockouts at the port. We're going to see menacing of workers that maybe the ports try to bring in, you know, scabs, so to speak, to come in and work these things. There's definitely going to be a deficit of qualified operators. And so all of the rightful grievances that the unions have about how hard they've had to work during this time, about the availability to get on dock and perform their functions effectively because truckers are missing gate appointments, but truckers are missing gate appointments because of other issues that aren't all their fault. And so this whole thing has turned into a big blame game of everybody wondering, well, what the hell can I do for me? And it's taken me 30 minutes to explain all of these concepts because this is such a tightly interlocked system with so many factors happening all at once. It's not one thing. It's not one, oh, one simple trick, right? This isn't some internet ad saying, well, there's the one weird trick to, to do X, to fix everything. There's one, there is no magic pill. It is going to be a brutal Darwinian process of failing forward, of trying to do a lot of things at once and of getting everybody at the table together to shut their mouths Put their self-interest aside and understand that nobody's self-interest is served by a collapse. Nobody's self-interest is served 
by the destruction of American supply chains. Nobody's self-interest and long-term interest of their families and of their city, county, state, and country is served by putting their own needs exclusively first to the exclusion of everybody else's. We built this house of cards. And every card needs to understand that it's got to be in its place, doing its thing, and trying to reinforce and support the card around it, or a light little breeze is going to blow this whole thing over. So should we have done things 20 years ago or 30 years ago differently? Should we not have optimized around globalization, optimized around these bad assumptions that we were at the end of history because the Soviet Union collapsed? And now we can just send everything to Asia, let them make things, and we'll just bring it back because it's cheaper to transport it than it is to make it. Whatever we should have done to address that, predict that, prevent that, not do it, it's too late. We are where we are, and we have to go from here and move forward. So with that urgency and with that frame in mind, these are the three things that we have to do simultaneously, polysynchronously, right? Starting at one point in time, but the timeline's moving at different speeds in parallel. Number one. We have to break the import and export transportation operational model, which right now is a very large, uh, sort of a, a circuitous thing where one truck is doing one thing with one container, or maybe two containers spread out over the period of a day. We need to start chunking these into domains of activity that we can expand the workflow and the machinery and the assets available to speed up the internal operations of each of these domains of activity and thus free up enough time and enough labor and resources to move the physical thing through time and space from one domain of activity into the next and build some efficiency back into the system, but from reverse. So the first, you know, the first step is the ship to shore operations that we need to address. The second is moving a container that is off the ship, it's on the terminal, getting it to rail, getting it to move inland again. The rail, the rail congestion is a huge part of the issue where containers that should have been moving to Chicago or are going to move to Chicago from Los Angeles are able to do so again and to do so on a more uh, you know, optimized basis or a faster basis. We need to address that as well. We need the, the containers that are going to stay locally, whether they're going for transload or whether they're going to be unloaded and put away into inventory in a distribution center. We have to speed up that operation. So port terminal to the import distribution center. We've got to get that addressed as well. We have to address the uh, empty import container problem. What do we do once a container is empty? And then the trucker has to reverse the process, take a container all the way from Ontario, California, 80 miles away from the terminal, drive all that distance through LA traffic, get it back to the port, and then have to sit an hour or two hours just to return an empty container and maybe pick up another. And the reason the empties matter is because, yeah, the empties need to get back to Asia to reload for more equipment, but it's the chassis that the empty is sitting on. We have to address the issue of how do we take a limited asset that will take a long time to manufacture more of and get to the port? How do we deal right now with this constraint? We need to address that. We need to address the uh, operations of making export containers available to importers, whether, or excuse me, available to exporters, so we, get the, we have to find a way to get the empty containers. This has been a real issue for American exporters is lack of availability of space on rail, space on ships, and containers and chassis for export operations, whether it's grain, whether it's waste paper, whether it's um, you know chemicals, whatever, lumber, whatever it may be that we export from the U.S. to other parts of the world, particularly to Asia, 
We have to get those containers and chassis available to them and space on the transportation network, whether it's rail, truck, or ship, to get those full containers back. American exporters have been getting crushed way harder than the import side. So we have to deal with all of these domains of activity at the same time, but in a way that is synergistic with all the other domains instead of antagonistic, where if we do the operations in one domain, it comes at a cost or a trade-off to the other domains. We have to stop having these, these all the stakeholders at, at war with each other inside the supply chain and make it easier for them to cooperate, make it easier for things to turn and to utilize the resources we have on hand because we can't make more people. We can't make more chassis. To the extent we should be doing that for future planning, yeah. But it's not enough to just say, we'll spin up the Defense Production Act and go do this thing, and then suddenly that's the magic. That's not, that's, that's not the way it works. Those chassis still have to be manufactured. They still have to be transported. There's still constraints affecting manufacturing in the U.S. that maybe will slow that process more than we think it will. So if we can increase the pool of operations personnel by reducing the risk below regulatory thresholds, that's point two. We do have to get more bodies, more living, breathing, capable human beings operating inside this model, working in one of these domains and expanding the ability and, and throughput of those domains of activity. The last, the number three, we have to accelerate the turn of equipment from port to unload back to port or port to the inland points and back. You've got to increase the velocity of movement of these, decrease dwell times on dock, decrease dwell times at the import operation centers, decrease dwell times at the export, and decrease the amount of time a thing is moving through time and space both ways. I believe, though, with the plan that I'm about to present, if we implement it as presented, and if we're willing to have a little bit of margin of error, and we're willing to have a little forgiveness for mistakes, and we're willing to have a little less fear that we're going to lock the whole thing up just by trying something new. My sense is, my, my, my calculations are, is that initially within, say, three weeks to four weeks, we can reduce the amount of time a container is, at the, the amount of time it takes from a, from a container to get off the ship, to get to an inland point or to a distribution center and back to the port, the initial goal, five calendar days. I think at the end of 60 days, once the model's really moving, we've got the lines of car flowing down the highway here, proverbially speaking, I think we can get to 10 calendar days, which is a dramatic and significant improvement when you consider that the average time for that container to get arrived to U.S. territorial waters, get off the ship, get delivered somewhere, and for that container to cycle back is anywhere from 60 to 90 days right now. We have to increase the churn. We have to increase available assets and available labor by thinking a little bit more asymmetrically about the problem, and we have to do it in a way that allows all of these individual domains and nodes to speed up. That's the mission. That's the goal. So this is a, a multi-step process. Like I said, there, there, most of these things are not going to have to happen in a linear sequence. They have to happen sort of simultaneously. Fortunately, the United States has a very powerful, known useful model for addressing dynamic, complex situations like this. And that is NIMS, the National Incident Management System, which was created under the Department of Homeland Security uh, following the events of Katrina. And the, the NIMS system is essentially a, a holistic model that's intended to guide all levels of government, non-governmental organization, private sector, public sector actors working together to mitigate and respond to specific national emergencies. In general, 
These would be things like hurricanes. They'd be things like tornadoes. These would be things like maybe a terrorist attack. But NIMS is really useful as a framework as well for coordinated action between all those same stakeholders to address an economic emergency. In this particular case, the port congestion crisis. The way this would work, we would activate NIMS. The way to activate the NIMS processes is that the governor of the state, in this case, Governor Newsom of California, is going to have to declare a state of emergency around a specific issue. Simultaneous to that, once the NIMS proto, you know, once NIMS has essentially been invoked, the federal government, the other regional governments are able to be brought in at different levels of effort to be a part of the solution. Importantly, the state maintains primacy, in this case, California, in this case, government, Gover Governor Newsom is the uh, sort of the chief executive uh, of the crisis, if you will. But he will have vastly uh, expanded pools of resources available to him immediately, available to the state, available to the county, to the municipal level. And he will have all of the support and resources of the federal government flowing in right alongside of it. Process from there is, is that an incident commander is selected. This is someone who's going to be sort of the uh, the CEO of the situation itself, reporting up to the governor and the governor's team. The incident commander is is the 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 general. He's the one that's in charge of all of the operations, the planning, the execution, everything that happens with regard to the specifically declared state of emergency and the specifically declared situation. The incident commander will delegate uh, and select a public information officer, which handles external communications, a safety officer, which is concerned with exactly what you would expect, which is the, the safety of everybody involved and ensuring that, the, that the, the system is operating in a manner that does not cause a physical ramifications in the environment. And a liaison officer, which is sort of an internal communications officer that helps guide and direct the flow of questions, needs, and resources within the team that's working to address these situations. Once an incident commander, public information officer, safety officer, and liaison officer are selected and have built a bit of a plan, what happens then is that general staff are selected and they're broken into four domains of effort, operations, planning, logistics, and finance and administration. Each of these domains then has certain working groups underneath of them. It's a dynamic process that allows for a lot of scalability and, and flexibility uh, to the specific situation. But once you have these people in place and once you have the buckets and the labor uh, organized, operations, planning, logistics, and finance and administration, what you then have to do is create a, a fusion of all of the stakeholders within those domains. In this particular situation, you're going to have people from the municipal, the municipality level, county, state, regional levels, and the federal level on uh, transportation infrastructure, law enforcement, the ability to, um, uh, with a bit of, with a bit of uh, coercive power, if you will, begin to open up some of these avenues and work together on that. From the federal level, you'd have representatives from the Department of Transportation, especially the Maritime Administration or MARAD. You would have Department of Homeland Security involved in this, especially Customs and Border Protection, which is responsible with the safety uh, and flow of cargo to and from the ports and the roads and rail of the United States. You'd have the Federal Maritime Commission involved. You'd have the Department of Commerce involved. May even at some level have the Department of Defense involved, depending on what level you are utilizing uh, Department of Defense resources. You'd have the constituent unions involved, and particularly the ILWU and the Teamsters, the Teamsters, uh, the, the trucking union, do an awful lot of the trucking on dock or from the terminals, from the ports to specific locations nearby. Now, there is a, there is a bit of a, particularly with the coming 
negotiations. There's going to be a lot of uh, self-interest, understandably so, on the parts of the unions. You utilize the guardrails that are set by the Taft-Hartley Act to kind of keep everybody in line there. You'd have to have port and terminal leadership involved. You'd have to have a representative who is uh, sort of acting on for the benefit of the ocean carriers, probably someone from the PMA, the Pacific Maritime Association. You'd have a single rep for the chassis operators. Uh, there's several companies that own and operate the chassis pools uh, as a specific asset around the area. You'd have to have someone sort of speaking for them and helping coordinate uh, where available chassis are, where chassis are, are down or whatever it may be. You'd have to have one to two reps representing the drayage community. There's an awful lot of trucking companies that are uh, owned by foreign nationals working in the U.S. or that are U.S. citizens. You've got a whole, uh, they're, they're from all over the cities. You've got a, a lot uh, of these truckers that would have to be kind of put inside of a pen together and a little bit treated as uh, a single pool of available assets rather than a whole bunch of individual asset operators. You'd have to have a liaison, someone who is uh, representing the interests of importers and exporters, what we call beneficial cargo owners who actually pay the bill on the ocean freight, who actually own the cargo that's being imported or own the cargo that's being exported. You'd have to have someone speaking for them and their needs, their requirements, their capabilities. Last, what you need to have is a uh, someone who is a, uh, a real estate expert, someone whose job it is is to liaise with the uh, various uh, you know, real estate uh, domains, uh, commercial, residential, whatever it may be, because that's going to be a big part of this plan and this proposal. So that person has to be have a seat at the table. You get all these people together, you stand it up. It would take five to, ten to, five to six days probably to achieve some level of buy-in, but NIMS is designed. It is an active framework we can use to organize the labor and divide the work needed to address this mess and, and importantly, achieve an interoperability and a clarity of communication by and between all of the stakeholders and the communities that they're working with. But it also allows us to have a single governing structure, a unified command, which we do not have, which is one of the major root causes of a lot of this, is you have 10 different government agencies, 50 different stakeholders, 50 different private operators, all operating in their own self-interest right now to some extent within the system and not able to coordinate a response or even willing to coordinate a response in a way that involves some strategic sacrifice for the whole. So you have to have a unified command. You have to have at some level the emergency powers of the federal government and the state government so that those bottlenecks can be broken apart and turned into a uh, constituent pieces turned into something that for a time will work very effectively. After activating NIMS, after dividing the labor and organizing the work, you have to begin to address the issue of incentivizing a return to work for warehouse, parcel, and carrier labor pools. The reporting that I've seen is that anywhere from 5 to 15% of the pre-pandemic workforce in these distribution centers has not come back to work or is not steady working. Uh, that, and that's with the explosion in volume. So five, if it's 5, let's say 10%, it's an easy number. 10% of the labor force in the distribution, warehousing, uh, uh, parcel, you know, the UPS, FedEx, people that are actually out on the street delivering to homes or delivering to re you know, retail businesses. If 10% of that labor force is down from pre-pandemic numbers, the problem is that much worse because of the explosion of volume that we have seen during the pandemic as a result of lockdown stimuluses, all these things we're talking about. So the, the labor power of an individual FTE is even diminished further 
than it was simply by the increase in demand on, this, on, on the labor structure that underpins supply chain and distribution. So we have to get those people back to work. The way, here's the way we do this. There are pockets of funding available in, in, in various county, state, federal level disaster relief funds, general funds, transportation funds, slush, you know, you know, slush funds of money that exist all over the various levels of government that could be that could be co-opted to this purpose. First, return to work bonuses. It's not just an argument over 15 bucks an hour, 18 bucks an hour, 20 bucks an hour. There is an upper bounded limit to how much a single corporation is able to peel out of their own profits to get someone to come back to work. This cannot be a race to the top for wages. The issue of fixing the long-term systemic abuse of wage earners, hourly wage earners in the distribution network, that does have to be addressed. But right now, the fastest, most expedient way to it is to put a $10,000 check into someone's hands and say, look, you come back to work. If you stay at work for 180 days, okay, if you abide by company guidelines for 180 days, or maybe it's 270, or maybe it's a full year, at the end of that time period, you're going to get another check handed to you. Guess what? Both of these checks, tax-free. It's $10,000. It's not $10,000 less federal income tax, less state tax, less FICA, less all of these other things that we pull out where a wage earner goes from, oh, I made $10,000 down to, oh, I made $5,500, right? That $10,000 is theirs. It's their incentive to get their butts back in a vehicle and drive to work every day and start driving forklifts or peeling pallets or whatever it is. Does the work suck? Yeah, it sucks. I've done it. All right. And I can tell you this, if I had no, if the option was staying at home, not earning, taking a, a pittance of government subsistence money every month, or someone putting a $10,000 check in my hand, I get back to work. And then at the end of that time frame, I get another similar $10,000 check for good performance and, and, and for not quitting my job as soon as I receive the check. That's a powerful incentive. Money is a motivator. Okay. And $2,000 may get people back to work, but it's not enough. And it's not fair for people to reorient their lives around things they had no control over, by and large. People respond to stimuluses, and to the extent that they respond to individual stimuluses in a selfish way is to be expected. Let the average person finally, for the first time, maybe benefit from this chaos and be able to put some bread in their pocket and some bacon on the table for the family. Help them at least for a time be in a position where their life is dramatically improved by being a part of the solution rather than being constantly dumped on by the system and told you have to work as hard as you can, as much as we can extract from you while giving as little back to you as possible. Let's get those people back to work, but let's reward them for making the choice to do it, not for compelling them to do it. Number two. Any overtime that a full-time worker gains in the next, uh, I'd say, let's say through the end of 2022, okay? So as it stands right now, the next 14 and a half months, any overtime that person earns above 40 hours a week, tax-free, just like the bonus check. The taxes stop at that special category of uh, other earnings or other compensations. It's on a W-2 form. I forget what it is now, but anything that's in that bucket, not part of the tax calculation, that money is hard work. That money is theirs. They keep it for them and their families and to spend in their communities. That's the overtime piece. For anybody who's been out of work for more than 180 days, not even 180 days, let's say 60 days, who's been out of work for 60 days and they come back in and for whatever reason, they're not able to go full-time, but they can work part-time. They can work seasonal labor. 
okay? All of their wages tax-free. Uncle Sam has taken enough money from us. Uncle Sam has sat on the backs of the workers for a long time. And to the extent that I'm a free market person and that the free market should determine wages, yeah, it should. But guess what? The free market is not at work here. This is a system. This is a tax regime. This is everything that's built around extracting the maximum amount of money from the productivity and labor of an average person and keeping it as much possible locked in these ivory towers for the benefit of the bigs. Big retail, big tech, big pharma, big food, whatever it may be, but for the exclusive use of the Mandarin class and the political elites and the financial class. That has to stop. Overtime tax-free for full-time workers, anybody who has who, who is coming back to work on a part-time or seasonal basis to help with this crush of activity, all of their wages tax-free. Last thing, subsidies for transportation and childcare for the warehousemen, the longshoremen, CDL drivers, anybody that is a, a, a subject matter expert in a specific operational domain, driving, you know, like operating a crane. It's a very complex thing, these gantry cranes that do the ship to shore operations. It's not nothing. Operating the, the locomotives, operating the yard dogs that shuttle containers around on, do on dock, CDL drivers who, um, for whatever reason, maybe aren't making enough money or whatever. Let's take care of these people. Lockdowns was a huge disruption to their lives. Kids having to stay home from school, daycares not being open, spouses having to quit work and homeschool kids because they're working from home or because the kids are having to learn from home. Even though a lot of these things have kind of sort of gone away, the disruptions remain. The cost that must be borne by the individual who already doesn't make a lot of money is often cases too much. So let's give them the ability to make it a little bit cheaper and convenient to transport themselves to work, to get to and from the office, to and from the warehouse, to and from the cab of their truck. Let's make it easier for them to pay for childcare so that the spouse can go back to work while they go back to work. So you have two full-time incomes in the home and the cost of childcare is helped pay for. If they have to work from, you know, if the child for whatever reason is on a remote learning basis, maybe they're in school, maybe they're 10 years old, have access to resources, so that that child can learn in a safe environment, a productive and healthy environment, even if both parents have to go back. Let's do that for these people. Let's use this situation, use the vast resources we have available to us to direct funding and good, intelligent ways of rewarding people for, product, for productive labor. Let's take care of them. Let's get them back to work. That's a big issue, but we have to take care of them. We can't just compel them to go back to work. We have to make the incentives work for them first. Number three, this is the big one. Number three, four, and five are, are very tightly correlated uh, issues, but they are their own separate domains of activity. Number one, secure container drop lots uh, in the industry we call these depots uh, opened on an ad hoc basis around Los Angeles, the Inland Empire, and Orange County. Okay, those, those three general regions are where all of the economic happens, activity happens on a distribution center and logistical basis. In the Inland Empire, you're, you're far northeast and east of the city. Orange County, you're immediately sort of proximal to the ports, but more or less, uh, you have to go east and south to get into that network of warehouses and distribution centers. And then you have everything that's around Compton, City of Industry, LAX. Uh, that whole area that, of Los Angeles County that's immediately adjacent to the ports where a lot of the distribution centers have built up. You have to make it easy for all of those locations to be able to get the empty containers 
off their lots so another loaded container can come in. But the rec but here's the problem. When those empties are empty, when, when, when the dispatcher at the warehouse says, hey, I got 10 empties, these four ocean carriers, these are the container numbers, these are the bill of lading numbers, hey, Jeraymond, container trucker, come pick them up. And the guy's like, I would, but my, my last available driver just picked up a load and he's got to drive out to you know San Bernardino. And I'm sitting here as a dispatcher with you know uh, my warehouse and city of industry. Well, that driver's not available to me and I don't have another available driver to come pick up any of these empties. I got to get them out of my facility. I got to get them off my lot because those empties in the door or those empties on my lot are blocking the ability for me to unload more loaded containers and get those out of the port. So what do we do? How do we address this model that we have where it's a driver going in with a loaded container, picking up an empty and having to come back. And that's the only option available for getting those empties off the streets and back into the port and those chassis being utilized again. Here's how we we set up secure container drop lots. At, I would say 15 to 20, target five, six, seven in each of the major import distribution markets, somewhat commonly available, adjacent to major highways, freeways. That's part of the, that's an important thing as well. 24 hour access for the Draymond. You can man them with longshoremen, you can man them with whomever, but as long as these facilities are somewhat secure, and no containers are going to get pulled in or out without the ability to check them in. Do an open pool format. You can use their street turn software, their software that exists explicitly to help ocean carriers and the ports and terminals and the draymen all deal with the fact that one trucking company pulled that container from a port, but a different trucking company is gating it back into the port. It's not as easy as it seems to an average person who's never worked in the industry to do that. It's a very complex thing and you have to notify these, these third-party software companies and you have to say, well, you know, Draymond A pulled this container from the port as a load on this chassis, uh, but Draymond B, completely different entity registered, you know, with the Department of Transportation, that different trucker is going to bring that same container back. The system is not really built for that sort of activity. So you create these, these intermediate softwares that help kind of manage and organize that chaos of multiple companies handling the same container. In order to do it. Fortunately, those pathways exist, those technologies exist. Time to utilize them at scale, uh, not just on an individual basis of you know one or two companies cooperating together to, to utilize a container with different truckers. Run it first in, first out. If this contain if this was the first container in, it comes right back out. You run the lot just like you do a warehouse. You're optimizing for speed within a smaller, more linear model which is really where optimization works, by the way. Optimization works where the factors are constrained, the, the pool of potential external risks is relatively limited, and within a linear process model, it's easier to optimize. Within a dynamic model where you're trying to optimize a lot of uh, features that are subject to chaos and to externalities, much harder. Part of the reason we chunk these domains of effort down is we take them being nodes in a dynamic network or nodes in a dynamic nonlinear uh, prone to fragility system, prone to disruption type setup. And we chunk these things down into smaller, less complex, more linear domains of activity where we can optimize for speed and efficiency and visibility within the model. The pools, however many, let's say you land on 20 across the three, uh, the three counties, the working zones, all of these terminals are linked to one another and linked to the ports and to the terminals as well. Open visibility, all containers, all carriers, making it so that you have a full picture of 
what's on the streets, where the chassis are, who's responsible for what at any point in time. This should be done anyway. Okay? This should be done anyway. It should be easier for ocean carriers, all the transportation and custom stakeholders and everything like that, and the importers and exporters to all be able to see the total map of resources available to them to be able to make business decisions. We can start now with this emergency requirement and turn it into something that actually has a you know, beneficial long-term impact on commercial trade in the United States. It's easy to say, well, let's just notionally find uh, some, some land available in Los Angeles until you actually look at a map of the greater Los Angeles area of Orange County of the Inland Empire. There's really actually not a lot of uh, just dead spots available, you know, acres of, of property available that are paved where you can drop a container down and it'll sit safely and securely until a trucker comes and picks it up. What we do have, though, particularly in the Los Angeles area, is preponderance of very large athletic facilities, convention venues, stadiums, huge parking lots, almost all of them somewhat available or adjacent to or directly located on major freeways and transportation infrastructure. Numerous of these facilities being out of season. Angels fans, I'm really sorry, but your lot's available for your stadium. Dodgers fans, same sort of deal. All right. But to the extent that these teams are uh, going to be done or are done or will be done very shortly with activity, those lots become available. Huge amounts of concrete to park centrally located to a lot of distribution points. And it's not just those, though. There are numerous vacant lots of some size. Uh, some are grassy, some are already paved, some are busted up concrete. Develop that infrastructure first, turn them into big parking lots with a gatehouse, secure access, things like that. All right, there are numerous of these facilities around the area. Time to tap into those. You've also got airports. Okay, San Bernardino International Airport, which uh, I forget which one it was, if that was Victorville or if that was uh, George. Uh, but, but San Bernardino International Airport, which was once an Air Force base, now mainly is a UPS hub. Okay, there are BCOs, big importers that are already storing their containers, you know, there on an emergency overflow basis. But the problem is, it is a long way from that airport to the port and back. But it would be a good place to hold things until such time as additional drivers can be pulled in and take those empties back to the port and cycle them on a faster basis. You also have smaller airports in the area. You have Fullerton. Um, you've got the airport at Torrance. You've got the airport there at Compton, which are uh, towered or non-towered general aviation fields. You know, it's tough, right? There's a bit of a shaking out process, a bit of a negotiation process, because you would be disrupting local general aviation or private flights. Um, but those discussions need to be had. But it is available, paved, easy access resources where containers can be parked in a central location and managed on a secure basis. If you're having to co-opt land, if you're having to take land, here's a 10-acre parcel or 25-acre parcel. It was just, you know, it's in grass, but it was it was at one point going to be a major uh, development, you know, a major complex or residential or, or, you know, commercial shopping, whatever it may be. Pay the rent to the landowners. That's fair. Don't just take it from them. Don't just pull an eminent domain. Take care of the private asset, okay? That is someone's private property. Even in an emergency, if you're going to co-opt it, okay, this is not an action movie where a cop can pull a gun and say, I'm, I'm taking, I'm commandeering this vehicle. No, we don't commandeer private property, not in the real world, okay? So abuse of eminent domain, no, financially compensate, say, hey, we're going to take this. We, we have to have it. 
but we're going to take really good care of you for use of your asset. And if the land improvements or rezoning has to be done to, to affect this change or to make it work in some way, guess what? It doesn't increase the tax base of the parcel for a decade. Let's say a decade. That's fair. That's fair. We're making improvements to the lot. Maybe we have to rezone it. And, and, and that landowner has left it in the condition it has because that's, all, that, that's the taxes that they want to pay is at that lower level for undeveloped land zoned a certain way. If we have to switch it over and we turn it into something that is the foundation for a viable commercial asset, let's incentivize that to become a viable commercial asset, you know, uh, uh, asset class. If it has to be zoned, rezone it. But guess what? It doesn't change, it doesn't, it doesn't change the taxable value for that. If it has to be paved, if power and electricity and utilities have to be added to it, guess what? It's still not taxed as an improved property. Okay, to the extent maybe that the person then chooses to build something on it, sure, tax that at the normal rate. But the fact that simply by virtue of an emergency, that land going from one state to another and being pressed into service, they shouldn't be penalized for that. They should be rewarded for sharing that asset with the rest of the world. Develop the drop lots centrally planned locations, proximal as much as possible to make it shorter, higher speed routes, quicker turns, quicker turn of those containers away from the dis distribution and import centers, get them into these drop lots, get them organized, sorted, managed first in, first out basis. Now we've begun to address one part of the problem. Second thing, open express routes, or we'll call them a night shift express route between the hours of, let's say, 8 p.m. and 5 a.m. Right now, statistics are that only about 30% of the appointment slots are filled sometime during the late evening, early morning hours because drivers run out of hours of service. It doesn't matter if the ports are open 24-7 if there's not enough trucks available because of manpower, availability, and restrictions to utilize those gate times. Okay, so we have to make it easier for those who are running at night to get fast, turn quick, and get as many moves as possible between the distribution centers or the drop lots and get those empties back and those chassis back into the terminals. We need to get that 30% appointment slot up to 90%. We got to use these dead hours smarter. We got to use the slower times on the highways so that we're not right in the middle of rush hour when everybody's trying to get to work or get home from work or normal retail day business between the hours of eight and five is being conducted. Let's take advantage of the reduced, naturally reduced flow of activity at night and let's make it easier for these containers to turn back from the drop lots. 24-hour drop lots. Not every distribution center in the greater Los Angeles area is open 24 hours. The gates are locked at a lot of these places. So those empties can't go anywhere. So unless a Dre, a Dre company has already pulled the empty out and hasn't staged at their lot ready to go home, they're not able to access those empties. That's the purpose of the drop lots. Clear the distribution centers out, get the containers into a place that's more easy to access on a 24-hour basis, and then open the express lanes and allow those containers to flow back as fast as possible. No law enforcement stoppages due to stupid pretext stops, taillights, or potential registration violation, uh, pulling it over to see if your wiring harness is loose on a chassis. Knock it off. All right. If the truck is operating in a safe and productive manner and is not impeding the safe operation of other vehicles, either in these trucking express lanes or with the res you know, with the commercial vehicles and the personal vehicles operating on the same highway. Leave the trucks alone. Let them do their thing. Increase the hours of service to a safe level. Maybe add two hours a day to where drivers are able to drive an additional two hours a day. That's for every driver. That's an empty, that's an extra empty container that can be brought from the furthest reaches 
of the greater Los Angeles market where distribution activity happens, that's one more empty container that can get back to the port. You scale that, you've got an awful lot of volume that's able to get back and get those chassis back to increase turn time, or excuse me, decrease the turn time, reduce the amount of time uh, the containers are on the streets by increasing the velocity. Last thing, I would say classify these empty, empty only moves. An empty container weighs about six to 8,000 pounds uh, for, for a 40 footer. My, my math is super hazy for going general. Chassis weighs about the same. And then you've got the truck all in maybe 35,000 pounds. All right. For, for a sleeper cab full of fuel, truck, a chassis and an empty container on it has 35,000 pounds. Okay. There are, it's, there's all the difference in the world between that container, that weight, operating at 70 miles an hour on a highway than a full 80,000 pound unit being operated by an experienced driver who's got a CDL, who does this all day long, every day, there is a little bit of difference in activity. You still need a safe, competent, capable driver that can operate a fairly complex machine like a big rig that knows how to safely pull, you know, 15,000 pounds of of iron and, and rubber behind him. But that's still different than a fully loaded container that's subject to load shifts, that's subject to toppling, uh, that, that is uh, a lot harder to start and stop with and drive effectively. Let's get those people, okay, the ones that know how to safely operate transportation, let's get them primarily focused on the business of moving the heavier, more dangerous thing and increase hours of service and, and classify these empty only moves under farm truck rules where the, the restrictions are a little bit different. You've got different assets available to pull. It doesn't have to be this specific type of truck operating with this specific registration. If it can safely pull a chassis in a container with a fifth wheel, we need to be using it. We need to get it back. Get it on the highways, get it safely operating in these express lanes, get it safely operating at all hours of the day, but especially at night when there's reduced traffic and where there's a lot of availability to move things to and from the terminals. Let's utilize those times. Number five, very important, activate the National Guard. That is an option that is available under the NIMS framework, and a governor can activate his own National Guard, but under NIMS, he can immediately request resources and support from any other state. That's part of how the National Guard works during humanitarian and emergency crises. That's why you see National Guard units from 10 states called up and specialists brought in from all these different units that different state National Guards have to help address a hurricane disaster or a tornado or a terrorist attack. The purpose of that framework is for humanitarian and emergency. This sort of thing, though, the model works. Let's use it. Okay. So that would be not only the National Guard labor, but also the assets of the National Guard. You're talking about a, a huge potential pool of untapped labor and untapped expertise and untapped physical assets that are useful for moving things from A to B sitting on the various National Guard installations in the various states that a lot of them probably would not care if they got called up. And yeah, okay, it's a little bit boring to shuttle containers and things like that, but that's still better than being home working the normal nine to five, right? Still get to deploy to California and eat in and out. So these, this type of thinking is what is required under an emergency. We have the framework, we have the assets, we have the resources, let's utilize them. Get the National Guard called up. Anybody who is qualified and experienced operator of heavy equipment, whether it's driving fuel trucks, whether it's driving flatbeds, whether it's driving the actual semis, if they know how to drive a truck and they know how to tow a thing safely, get them there. Okay. They're not going to pull loaded containers from the port. They don't need to. 
That's what the Draymen are for. There's enough of those guys available that have CDLs to competently, safely pull loaded containers that weigh 70, 80,000 pounds to wherever they need to go all day. Okay. We have to take the burden off those guys by bringing in people who are not quote unquote registered or certified or, uh, or from a regulatory sense qualified, but who are actually physically qualified and mentally and emotionally capable of doing a thing. Let's get those guys in there. That's how we expand the immediately expand the pool of available labor to move these physical things in time and space. The purpose of the National Guard would be twofold. You would have National Guardsmen or even volunteers uh, who maybe don't have CDLs, but kid that grew up, you know, driving trucks on his farm all day long under farm truck rules. He knows how to operate a big rig, but now he's a computer programmer at some company in Orange County. Okay. Let him volunteer right alongside those guys. Let him put a skill to work that he didn't have before. If it's even one guy, let alone a thousand or 2000 that are able to do this, that are able to be compensated for participation in this emergency, let's get them in every available body that can safely do this. Let's do it. National Guardsmen come in. They have two jobs. First, small sweeper teams that are based at the drop lots, the various drop lots have designated zones of activity where all they do all day is they go drop lot to the distribution centers, pick up the empties, bring them back to the drop lot. Okay, so for every one sweeper driver you've got that going relatively short distances from the drop lot to the DCs, to the distribution centers, DCs, okay, that one person can make an awful lot of turns in a day relative to a normal dray driver that's going to pull a loaded container from the terminal or from the port on the water, drive three hours somewhere, have to unload, drop that trailer, and then pull another empty back to the port. Now that guy has handled one half of a container movement in a full working day. That's part of the reason these containers are out on the street so long, okay? So send National Guard teams, send driver teams, sweep the DCs, utilize that pool of labor to go get as many empties out of the distribution centers as possible and unlock them and free them up to do their work faster at the distribution center level. Then you have a larger team of drivers because the sweepers are gonna be able to move relatively quick at short distances, local routes, have a larger pool of available drivers whose only job is to drive empties back to the terminal, back to the port, okay? Is there a lot of bobtailing, which is, uh, or deadheading, which is driving without any freight on your back? Yeah, it's going to be an awful lot of that. But guess what? It needs to be a lot of that. That, that. that truck's one purpose, that driver's one purpose needs to be just clearing these empty lots out. And that's why you're going to need more of them. Okay, I don't know what the ratio is. You figure that out along the way. But let's say you've got 10 National Guardsmen uh, or volunteer drivers that are sweeping the lots and pulling empties back all day long. You're going to need 50 or 60 or 70 drivers emptying these lots out to keep pace with the sweepers or working ahead of the sweepers. Where you churn through the drop lots, you want to reduce that time as well that a container dwells inside the drop lot. Okay, but you optimize that ratio as you go. You figure it out as you go. You figure out about how many uh, longer haul drivers does it take to get from the drop lot to the terminal and bobtail back. And then you just start optimizing according to how fast the sweepers work and the distribution center to the drop lot level. And then you say, how fast does it work from the, uh, from the drop lot to the terminal and back? But once the model's in motion, once you start to have data points, guess what? Then you're optimizing. You're not waiting for the perfect plan to materialize. You're iterating as you go. You're solving as you go, but at least you're going. At least things are moving. Okay. Next thing. 
the issue of demerging detention could be completely its own thing. Okay, but that definitely is a major financial constraint for freight forwarders, customs brokers, importers, and exporters is this issue of with a relatively few days, the clock starts ticking. And then all of a sudden, if that container hasn't gotten out of the terminal, it doesn't matter why. The terminals don't care. They're charging you hundreds of dollars a day per container. The detention is the amount of free time on the uh, container itself that the ocean carrier begins to charge you. If it's out on the street for so many days, they don't care why that container is not back in. If the system doesn't say that container was outgated and returned by a certain time or within a certain window of time, guess what? You're getting charged hundreds of dollars a day. Okay. So some of these, some of these companies are getting hit with two, three, four, five thousand dollar bills that they have to clear in order for the carrier to be willing to carry their freight from China to the US, or they have to clear it before the stuff even leaves the terminal and gets released to deliver. It's a huge cash flow issue that's front loaded in the process, and they're not going to get their money back out of that container as an importer until the goods deliver maybe a month after that. And then the receivable cycle starts. And so there's 60 to 90 days from beginning to recover all of the cash outlay they've had for the ocean freight, the demerge, the detention, the accessorials, paying the trucker up front to move that stuff out of the port. And through no fault of their own, they're getting smashed with these excess fees. Demerge and detention, I get the use of it. I get that the point is to incentivize the quick and speedy movement and return of containers. But guess what? The system has crashed. It has collapsed. The accordion has smashed shut. Everything is slowed down. Everything is not moving and people are being penalized. Companies are being penalized egregiously for no fault of their own. The incentive of demerge and detention is to incentivize and increase the speed at which all the stakeholders operate. But if they are constrained, if they cannot operate, if they're staring at a brick wall, you can't charge them for things they can't control on the other side of that brick wall. It's immoral. It's completely against all common sense. And it's putting companies into bankruptcy. And I'm not going to put any company names down on the street. I know of at least three offhand right now that the issue of high freight rates and equally high demergent detention bills through no fault of that company is causing them to have to restrict inventory, reduce manufacturing, lay off employees, and probably end up getting bought out by some bigger company that has the resources to weather this storm. There is no incentive in play except greed and profiteering by the terminals and by the ocean carriers. It's immoral. It's evil. It's completely against the premises of the American economy, what we should be based on or what we like to pretend we're based on. I say the hell with that. Choke that revenue stream out and watch the carriers and watch the terminals get their act together. For anything that's already out, for any unresolved, undisputed charges, $500 cap. Because guess what? 500 bucks is the maximum amount. If I have cargo on a ship and that ship runs into troubled issues, let's say the Ever Given, the carrier declares force majeure, I lose $100,000 as someone with cargo on that ship because my customers can't get their cargo. I lose the sale. I lose $100,000 because that ship turned itself sideways in a canal half a world away. Purpose of declaring force majeure is what? To invoke general average, which means all of us on that, that have cargo on the ship share the risk equally of the loss. So if that ship owner is sued for, I'm picking a number here, a billion dollars, right? 
the, 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 the 2000 companies or people that have cargo on that ship are splitting the billion dollar loss equally. And the ocean carriers say, guess what? Our limits of liability per container, 500 bucks. Sorry. I know you lost a hundred thousand dollars, Mr. BCO, Mr. Cargo owner. Sorry that our issue caused you a hundred thousand dollar loss. Here's a $500 check. I hope like hell you have cargo insurance on that to make up the difference. No, no, no. That's not how this works. Okay, the system doesn't get to collapse, and then the carriers and the terminals and who and the railroads with their rail ramps get to charge me ten thousand dollars for something I can't control. So we're going to reverse the general average concept. Guess what? I'm now only paying you, Mr. Carrier, five hundred dollars. You cause a disaster that impacts my business, and you give me five hundred dollars. You can go to hell. Your insurance company is now on the hook for the quote lost revenue of the fact that operational constraints have made it impossible for me to get my container and do my job, made it impossible for you to do your job, reverse general average. I'm only paying you 500 bucks to merge into detention. You can split that with the terminal however you want. You two go work it out. But I'm only paying you 500 bucks. I'm not paying you $10,000. I'm not paying you $5,000. I'm not crushing my line of credit, my working capital, my ability to operate my business and pay my employees and work with my customers because you can't get my... Con- container available to me fast enough for my trucker to go pick it up. If Maersk and O&E and MSC, although they don't publicly report their figures, but if these companies are making billions of dollars profit in one quarter because they've jacked rates to the moon and they're charging egregious and excessive demerge and detention, if they're doing that, they can take this hit, they can suck it up alongside the rest of us. A system That is where the elites don't share the pain of the people impacted downstream. That's just authoritarianism by another name. That's not America. It has become America, but it doesn't have to be. Flip the model, make everybody share a little bit of that pain, just like we have to in a general average scenario or something that happens on water is my problem, but the carriers are only willing to give me 500 bucks or my $100,000 problem. All right, time to turn the tables, restore a little bit of order here. Number seven, use the Defense Production Act to secure the raw materials and the production capacity required for new chassis and containers to be built in North America, reestablish some level of shipbuilding repair and capability in the United States, and eliminate tariffs on any overseas produced chassis and containers for the next 180 days, even if they're made in China. We've got to increase the pool of available equipment and incentivize and spur that production now. The Defense Production Act can be used in a lot of ways in a scenario like this. Uh, There are probably a lot of clever uses for it that are tangential or adjacent to this situation that we could cover at a different time, but time is already running low on this podcast, and I want to be sure that we get the last couple things out here. So those are the seven things, okay? If hard to follow along, I know I got a little ranty here. Uh, Some show notes will be produced uh, as as well as some diagrams and things like that help kind of visualize this in a much simpler way. Uh, there are also some other potential resources, the ideas that uh, people have brought or that I've had on my own that I've not fully vetted. So I didn't want to make them part of this, uh, this necessarily this presentation, but uh, use of flat top and deck barges for on water, empty container storage, or even cabotage operations where you're transloading them to the ocean barges, running them along the coastal waterways to uh, ease some of the congestion of cargo that maybe is supposed to go to Oakland next, but the ship owners really want to turn around and head back to Asia. To whatever extent we have available flat top barges and and tugs or ships that can do that kind of work, we need to be doing that. 
similarly, crane barges that can do ship to shore operations at smaller scale emergency ports, or maybe there's a gantry crane, but you can berth a ship. Uh, you know, that's how it's done in Haiti. That's how it's done in a lot of uh, very smaller, underdeveloped countries around the world where you utilize crane barges uh, that float on the water to transfer containers from a barge or from a ship. Uh, availability of even like maybe some larger seahorse ships uh, that can carry coastal freight uh, longer distances along the inland waterways and allow us to turn the big ships faster uh, from the West Coast back to Asia. Uh, local freight, uh, local rail yards uh, that are capable of lifting containers uh, from trains to chassis, from chassis to trains, from the ground to the train, et cetera, uh, but have the ability to be shuttle rail terminals where we can shorten the amount of time it takes to pull things off dock, uh, more so than that process is already done this way, where you've got shuttle trains pulling containers out and to larger switch yards where they're settled onto trains going to Chicago or KC or wherever. But there, there, there are likely, although I haven't investigated in enough depth to say, but there are likely places where these rail operations can be done to increase uh, increase the number of containers moving off dock uh, from the terminal to some inland point on a per day basis. We have to try to speed that up if, if those resources are available. Uh, last, and this is something that, uh, you know, Professor Sal Mercoliano will probably uh, consider near and dear to his heart. I certainly do to mine as well. Uh, MARAD, which is the uh, Marine, uh, Maritime Administration uh, under Department of Transportation, maintains what we call the National Defense Reserve Fleet. Uh, or the Reserve Ready Forces, which is a component of that. And it's a fleet of ships that we maintain at basically three to five locations around the U.S. that, that exist essentially. They're commercial type ships of different kinds that exist to provide uh, rapid strategic sea lift support in the event we have to mobilize for a military operation. When those ships are uh, not called up, most of them just you know are, are, are in birth or maybe doing some different missions here, there, and everywhere. But we do have some level of resources available. Uh, I didn't have time to pull the whole roster of ships available and sort everything out and say this particular ship or that particular ship, but they're out there. Even if we could pull 10 into service for something like this, we need to do it. Um, so one, of these, uh, one of these fleets is located in Alameda, California. Another one is sitting at, um, oh gosh, I forget the, uh, the name of it, but essentially the, uh, the Navy's Boneyard up by San Francisco. There's a few ships still there that a couple of them are uh, still seaworthy enough to do it. You've got some at James River in Virginia. You've got some in Beaumont, Texas. Uh, but let's try to activate these assets to the extent it makes sense to do it and involve them uh, in moving things. The benefit there is it also drives the requirement to release additional funds under the Defense Production Act and under some of these other buckets of money uh, to incentivize and encourage rebuild and repair operations on these ships after being utilized for this purpose and, and even spur new build of particular strategic classes of ships that we have not invested in at all in the United States but need to invest in. That's a topic for a whole other podcast. I got a whole bunch of navalist guys that I'd love to reach out to and get their thoughts on maybe like a big Zoom call that we could record of how do we strengthen national security and economic security by encouraging and incentivizing new build of large ships and getting our shipbuilding industry reoriented away from purely uh, U.S. naval work towards reestablishing a merchant marine capacity in the U.S. That's probably one of the top three things we could do that has extraordinarily benefit, uh, beneficial impacts on both national security and economic security is getting our commercial shipbuilding industry revitalized back online, building those ships. This is a really good excuse and a really good way to do that and start that process. So with that being said, it's, it's, uh, it's long for a lot of people listening. It's, it's uh, probably unexpectedly uh, tedious to listen to me rant for an hour and a half about some of these things, but we've got to get the information out there somehow. Uh, my hope, 
my, my care is not to be recognized for this. My care is not to have people talk about how wonderful and smart Ross Kennedy is or, or how cool Fortis analysis is or any of these things. All I really want, okay, is for this plan or a better version of it, right? It's either the plan or it's a jumping off point to get into the right hands, Democrat, Republican, Independent, Polka Dot, Flying Spaghetti Monster, Pastafari, and High Priest. I don't care. If they have the ability to, to drive the influence to implement this or something better than this, but start somewhere and get it going today. A, better, a, a decent plan, even a poor plan executed immediately is better than a perfect plan executed a month from now or two months from now. Because a month from now or two months from now, it is going to be exponentially worse from a long-term impact standpoint than if we do something today and if we start something today. Okay, so spread this far and wide. Uh, if you spread it, put your name on it and say you came up with it, write it down, steal it, iterate it. I don't care, but get it out there. Okay, get it into the right minds, get it into the right hands. Congressman, if you're a congressman or you're a staff member congressman, and this is an issue that concerns you, reach out to me. I'll connect you to 20 people much smarter than me that can help with these constituent domains of activity. If someone could be a really good incident commander and has the foresight and capability to organize something as complex as this, get that person's ass in the hot seat and have them start working this problem. Get it in front of Governor Newsom and his team. Get it in front of the White House and that team. Get it in front of all of the regulatory agencies that would be involved in this, but start the conversation now and do it with a sense of mutual implicit trust that we all want what's best for our economy. We all want what's best for ourselves, for our companies, and for our domains of influence. And the recognition that by giving, by all of us just giving up 50% of what we, we think we need or we think we want to perfect our own little experiences, if we give up that 50%, we change the game for the system as a whole and for the better for our country. So do whatever you need to do to get these ideas out. The ideas and the plan are what matters. Not credit, not anything other than simply doing maybe for freaking once in our lives, doing what's actually best for America, doing what's actually best for our economy, rather than serving the interests of the kleptocrats and the cacistocracy and the corporatocracy that runs the show. By, with, and through. All right, that's how we get this done. Cooperation at all levels, self-sacrifice at all levels, breaking old models in order to rebuild the model into something new and better, more scalable, more agile, less fragile, more resilient. And maybe we'll come out on the other side of this even better than the enemies of America could ever have possibly hoped. That's all for this podcast. Reach out to me at any time if you have any questions. You can find my Substack, FortisAnalysis.substack.com. Uh, you can find, excuse me, find the Fortis Analysis account on Twitter at Fortis Analysis or my personal account, uh, man underscore integrated. Um, guys, share it. All right, these ideas are free. I don't want to get paid for these and I don't want credit for them. Just get the ideas out there. Start working on solutions. We need to start solving now. Appreciate everyone who listened, everyone who may or may not share this. But nonetheless, if you did listen, if you did hear it, if this did resonate with you, stop being part of the problem. Start being part of the solution. Doom Sparrow Sparrow. <laughs>